We are in Hebrews chapter 6. We're continuing on in the series, Let Us Draw Near, our study at the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 1004. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to focus on two verses as we come to the end of chapter 6 in Hebrews. If you've been with us, you know the progression. You know that this book was written to a group of Jewish believers. Jewish believers believers who had put their confidence and boast in Christ. They had come out of Judaism and saw Christ as the Messiah and stood there. But their their knees were beginning to get wobbly. And the writer of Hebrews writes this book to them to say, stand firm. Don't cast away your confidence and your boast. And the way that he does it, the way that he brings them back to stand firm and to stable those wobbly knees is to lift up the gospel, to lift up Christ. And here in these two verses, he marvelously does it again. And so what we're going to do is look there. And it says in that first verse that was read, we have this, what? What do we have? An anchor, yes. He likens it to an anchor, But if you look at that text, it says we have this hope, hope. That's what he brings them back to, the hope of the gospel, the thing that will take those wobbly knees and steady them and cause them not to step away from putting their confidence firmly in this Messiah. He's confident it will do its work. He's confident they will be shaken out of their lethargy and hold steady. And hear how he lays it out. This morning, what I want to do on this Easter Sunday is just go through it. Just go through some things about that hope that are in this text, I believe. Some ways it's described. Some ways that I hope will cause you to be strengthened this morning. To put your boast even more securely in the Messiah in the resurrected Christ this morning. First of all, in this text, if you look there, it says that we have this, and I said hope. You can insert that word there as a sure, as a sure thing. The resurrection is about an objective event that occurred in history. Look at, if you will, just a few pages over in the book of Hebrews, if you're there this morning. To verse 32, one of the reasons that this writer is confident that these Hebrew believers will not cast away their confidence and they will continue to boast in this Christ and not return back to Judaism is because of former days. And here he writes of former days. He says in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew something. They knew something. They knew an objective reality that they were looking ahead to. And here's where he describes it. You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, they were giving up possessions. Literally, what was happening in this text is these Hebrew believers had their fellow believers in prison for their faith. They were put in prison. And and they were taking things to them at the risk of what? Of them being put in prison. Of their possessions being taken and plundered from them. That's what they were risking when they went to the prison. Nothing less. And the reason they were doing that is because they knew that, yes, these are objective possessions that we will give up, but they aren't lasting objective possessions. They won't last. And even if they don't take them away from here, us now, we one day will surrender them at death. And they were willing to forego the now because they had the reality of a lasting and abiding possession. An objective reality. That's the hope that they had. Not some kind of subjective kind of feeling of hopefulness. It was rooted in an objective belief that whatever they surrendered now would be returned to them and it would never be taken away. It would be abiding. It was an objective hope because of an objective reality. And the objective reality was the resurrection of Christ. Listen to what the scriptures say. If you want to turn, you can, but if not, just listen. Listen to to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to this objective reality. I read a portion of it at our prayer time, but just hear what it says. A chapter that's full of the meaning of the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. Of all chapters of all of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15 has the most. And there he just recounts it. It it says in verse 3, this is, this is an objective reality, something that happened in history that Paul is recounting to them. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with all that had been promised, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and lastly of all, to one untimely born Paul on the road to Damascus. He appeared to him. That is an objective account of the resurrection of Christ. It's placed in history. That's what it means by objective. You can touch it. You can observe it. You can, can uh, analyze it. You can go and see if it's true or not because it's in history. You see, that's what is distinctly different about Christianity. Christianity is absolute unique, unique in that sense. It's like no other world religion that vies for your boasting 
because it goes out there and just lays it out in history and says, come and check it out. See if it's true. The premise of Christianity is it's the only viable worldview that is historically defensible. It's, it's, a, it's the most falsifiable religion in all of history by the sense that it gives claims and it puts them in time and space and says, come see if they're true. Check them out. Think about it for a minute. Think of the contrast of all the world religions of our world. Christianity does this. After a public ministry, a public ministry, Christ was killed publicly. Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. Christ publicly showed himself to the public. 500 at one time, it says. And others. The public then, in turn, told everyone what they saw. It was all done in public. And in the end, it's proclaimed to the public to come and check it out. Versus other world religions. Islam, for instance, centers in a private dream of one man about God. Joseph Smith's Mormonism is a is based on a private angelic encounter about what God said to him. Buddhism and Hinduism center in private ideas about God. You see the difference, public versus private? And in, and in the end, in all of those other religions, it's one person telling everyone what they saw and saying, believe this, versus Christianity that's all done in public. It's there in history. It's there for you to check out. It's there for you to, to, to analyze and to think about and to ponder. It's objective. You see, God just laid it out. If you're going to falsify something, you do it privately. If you're going to make it up, do it privately. Now, maybe they think it really happened But again, even if they think it happened, doesn't mean it happened if it's private, if it's not in public, it's not historically verifiable. Think about it for a minute. Think about it as you read the account of the resurrection. Who were the first to witness the open tomb? Women. Don't pass over that too quickly. Women. Who in a Jewish culture couldn't even testify in court about the viability of something and, and their account be taken seriously. They couldn't do it. It was, it was the social culture of the day. Their word would not win. So if you were going to make something up, if you were going to write something that was untrue, would you use women to be the first witnesses of that? Doesn't logically make sense, does it? You see, Christianity is unique in many, many ways like that. Now listen, listen here to what I just read in Corinthians as we go on a little farther about the resurrection. Listen to what it says. It says this to you. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who've died before us, those who we memorialize here, they perished. And then it says, this is, this is amazing. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be what? Pitied. I remember a number of years ago looking at May Palmer, who spent 28 years in Haiti, and saying to you, May, if Christ is not raised, you were a fool. That's biblical. If Christ are not, was not raised, you're a fool to have given 28 years in the nation of Haiti and been deprived things that you could have had here. You're a fool. The people who went to that prison to see those who had had their property plundered and would starve to death had their friends not come to help feed them at the risk of being there themselves were fools. If Christ is not raised... The scriptures tells you, go eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up. Get all the gusto you can get now. Because if he's not raised, it's all you're going to get. Don't give your life away. Don't be a fool to go to the prison. Because that's all you'll get. You see, Christianity just lays it out. It just says it. It doesn't hide it doesn't make apologies for it. It just is objectively verifiable because it lays it out. So it is a sure hope, objectively sure hope. But it also says in the scripture, it is steadfast. It's a steadfast hope. If you go back to the, to the portion in Hebrews there now again, it's sure It's steadfast. What what does that mean? Well, you probably need to go back with me and you can listen to the full-blown attempt at this in other messages that are on the website. But it goes back, I think, to earlier things that he said it's steadfast because it's based on the word of God. It's based on the promises that God has made. And last week, he not only made promises that he asked his people to stand on, but he... He verified those promises with an oath. His very own name he took and and stamped the honor of his name to those promises. And in that sense, I think the author is thinking it is a steadfast hope. It's, It's based on promises that God has made and God is faithful. Last week, I said this. I say it again to you. Part of that whole idea of of God is a just God and if he has made promises, he he will not go back on those promises, particularly as he staked his name to that because it would dishonor his name and God would never allow his name to be dishonored. He would never allow that. And, and one of the things we can stand on, a steadfast hope, is that Jesus will receive the reward of his suffering. For Jesus to have suffered all that he has suffered, the horrific life that he lived... In many ways, as he resisted sin and we can't have any comprehension of the degree because we give in, we don't know how hard it was for him to resist sin for a lifetime because we give in way too quickly. We don't know the full brunt of temptation as he knew it, but that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it is that he was 
crucified and at one point forsaken by his father. We really can't understand that. We can't understand what he saw when he looked into that cup, cup of suffering. But God promises that Jesus will receive the reward of that suffering. For, for God the Father not to give Jesus the reward of that suffering would be injustice. He has suffered for it. He has died for the sins of all who believe. Did he, did he die and spend some of that suffering for not? No. Those whom he died for can have a steadfast hope And those he died for are those who have taken refuge in him and put their boast in him. Make it about God himself. Jesus will not be denied the reward of his suffering, which was to save those people. See, that's the hope that he brings to these Hebrew believers. That hope that God will honor his name and do justice to his son who suffered that he might gather a people to himself. It's a steadfast hope. Listen to what the psalmist says. This is what he's saying. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you, who put their confidence and boast in you. He, he doesn't forsake those. You can, his name will not allow him to do it because he said he won't. If you have put your boast in Christ and have taken refuge in him, you can take great confidence and have great steadfastness in the soul that Jesus will not be denied the reward of his suffering was to save all who do that. Thirdly, It's a sure hope. It's a steadfast hope. It's also a singular hope. Look at verse 19. It says, we have this hope, but as you go down a little farther, that is sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. But then it says, a hope. A hope. That's not plural. It's singular. We have a hope. The definition, as the scripture says, when it says earlier in Hebrews, don't throw away your confidence and boast is singular. To boast is a singular thing. You're boasting in this, not multitudes of things at once. To boast means you're standing there and there alone and nowhere else. You don't stand there just in case it's the right thing to do. You don't stand there as one possibility among many and kind of shift your weight around to make sure you can stand in as many places and boast in as many places as you want. That's not the inference of Christianity. You, you have decided, you have checked it out and you've decided that this is where I'm going to stand. This is where my hope is going to be and nowhere else. The full weight of your hope is in Christ is that he suffered for you and he will receive the reward of his suffering it's about believing God to rest in him to take refuge in him you can't you can't do that in multiple ways Christianity Christianity claims that this is the safe place to rest 
This is the safe place to take refuge. This is the place to put your boast. It's why I like that word so well in Hebrews. Boast. Makes sense to us, doesn't it? We understand what that's like. We know what boasting means. It's putting it there and there alone. That's what it is. And that's what these believers are being called to make sure of. Don't start shifting it. See, they were in danger as their knees began wobbly to kind of step back and and begin to step here and, and try to boast in two places at once. And the writer says, don't do that. Don't cast away your confidence and your boast. Keep it here. Let the, let the hope of this gospel make your legs be firm. So it's sure, it's steadfast, it's singular, and it's a shattering hope. It's a shattering hope. What, what do I mean by that? Look, look again at the text here this morning. And it says this. It says in our text that we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that does something. It, it enters into an inner place behind the curtain. An inner place behind the curtain. What, what's that mean? I mean, you have a vague idea, maybe, that gets you into heaven somehow. But, but what's he referring to? What curtain is he talking about? Think with me for a minute or go back with me to Matthew chapter 27. Let me, let me read a portion to you here and see if it doesn't get a brighter picture for you. This is Jesus on the cross. And about verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out, again with a loud voice and yielded his spirit on the cross, yielded his spirit. And at that exact moment, it says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain that kept everyone except the high priest once a year after great ceremonial cleansing out of the Holy of Holies, out of the presence, what, what represented the presence of God was torn in two. Just coincidence? Again, an objective, verifiable fact that's recorded in history that the very moment Jesus gave up his spirit, it was rent in two. It was torn in two. And the the, the word says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs and after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. You see, you can, it's verifiable. It's laid out. It's in history. What's it mean? It means what we've tried to symbolize in this whole series, that God is holy. He is holy. That's, that's what that veil means. He is holy. Holy, holy. When something is repeated three times in Scripture, it is done for emphasis and done rarely. But he is holy. He is more holy than you know he is. And you can understand he is because sin taints everything for us. But the admonition is, let us draw near. But how? How do we draw near? How do we enter into this holy of holies and and make 
way into the presence of God. Look again at what the text says. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The reason is because Jesus did that. He's the one who shattered the barrier and entered into the presence of a holy God. As the scripture says, as our forerunner. Look, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He has made the way. He has paved the road. And the road is himself. And in fact, if we are in Christ, the Bible talks about again and again being in Christ. We're in him. In one sense, we are already there. You see, we have been able to enter in to the holy place. By, by, not by bringing that holiness down. That's what we want to do. We, we, are, we are bred to want to do this. It's part of our sin that wants to just lower the standard. Just make it less somehow. Or somehow raise up the uh, uh, evaluation of our performance. That's, that's what we tempt to do. Just, just think we're doing better than we are or God is less than he is. And this text doesn't make you do either. That's the glory of the gospel. It's the glory of making your boast and taking your refuge in Christ. Because you don't have to do that. That is hope, folks. A hope that has entered in. Jesus has entered in. He's shattered the barrier for us that was there. And so the admonition is, let us draw near with confidence Confidence in me? No. Confidence in that we have a forerunner who has gone ahead of me and paved the way for me to be there. You see, it centers in a Savior. This hope centers in a Savior. It centers in a forerunner, and there's only one singular forerunner in regards to Christianity. Christianity doesn't teach. There are multiple forerunners You can't find that anywhere in Scripture. There is one forerunner who came some 2,000 years ago, and the Scripture says he came for one purpose. Hebrews tells us he came to die. He came to die. That's why he became fully man, that he might die for us. After he had lived perfectly, don't, don't miss that part. After he had lived perfectly, after he had fully resisted sin to the ultimate degree and not sinned, he then goes as a forerunner on our behalf into the presence of God. He shatters the barrier. He allows us to put our boast there and our confidence there and our hope there. And I say this, to put our hope in a place that is secure. It's secure. It's sure. It's steadfast. It's singular. It shatters. It centers in a Savior. And it is secure. We haven't talked about it yet, but one of the things that this text says is that we have an anchor, and the anchor is our hope. I mean, it uses that illustration of anchor. We don't understand that terminology as well as they would have. You'd understand it better if you were on the East Coast or the West Coast where there are ships and sailing and anchors are incredibly important to hold a ship 
steady in the midst of waves that are pounding against it. But in the time of the writing, anchor actually became a symbol of Christianity. In the catacombs, if you go, you will find anchors on the walls. It was incredibly important. Anchor. This hope is an anchor of what? It's important to see an anchor of the soul, of your soul. Now, get a picture in your mind as we close here this morning. This is the picture. Get it right. Get it correct. You see, I think sometimes we see that anchor. That anchor is cast and lodged in heaven. It is. I mean, it's, it's there. It's, it's gone through the, to the curtain. It's a forerunner. Um, it says here that Christ is a, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's an anchor. It's anchored there in heaven. But be careful of how you see the chain that comes from that anchor. Don't see that chain as, an, as a chain that flails in the wind. And, and you grab onto it, but it continues to flail you. And, and the danger is, as the storm gets harder and the battle sharper, that somehow you will lose your grip of that anchor. Don't get that picture. That's not the picture here. The picture here is it's an anchor that secures our soul. Yes, it's anchored in heaven, and that's one way it anchors us. It anchors because it's in heaven. Christ is a forerunner, but it also is tied around us. And the us are those who put their confidence and boast in Christ. Look at two passages, and then we're going to close here this morning in Hebrews. Two passages that almost every Sunday I take you back to as we walk through this series. They come to us in chapter 3 of our text. Chapter 3, we read this twice, said a little differently each time, but we read it twice. It says in chapter 3, and this is part of the warnings that that he gives to the Hebrews who are thinking about shifting their hope, but he says to them, and we are his house. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then a little later in that same chapter, he says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's two ways to see that text. One way is to see that flailing chain up there going around. You grab up and you hold on to it, and to the degree to which you can hold on to it, you're secure. If you you hold on to it, if you hold on to it, you in fact then are his house. You become his house. If you hold on to it, you are in fact uh, have come to share in Christ. But if you let go of it, you don't. It's not what that text says. It says, you have come to share in Christ. You are his house. And the evidence of that is that you will hold it secure. And holding it secure means that God, by his grace, will keep your confidence and your boast there. 
He will not let you cast away your confidence. He will not let you go back or straddle the fence and shift your confidence and your boast. Those who truly have come to Christ, those who truly are his house, God perseveres in them. He puts that anchor firmly in heaven, yes, but he firmly secures it to us as well. That's what he's trying to tell them. That's what he's trying to encourage them with this morning. We have a hope, a sure, steadfast, singular, shattering hope that centers in a Savior that is secure. This morning, I hope that's your boast. I hope that what Easter is about at the core is that that I have come to put my boast there and nowhere else. That's where my confidence lies. You come this morning as a declaration of the fact that that is your confidence. You see, your confidence is that God, who has begun a good work in you, will bring that work to conclusion. He will continue your confidence and boast in him. That was the hope of the writer of Hebrews for the Hebrew believers. He was confident. He was sure that the things that belong to salvation, which are continuing in confidence boast, would be evident in their lives. This morning, I I hope that, that Easter has that significance for you. It is what the resurrection means. That's why I said earlier, we need to not only talk about a resurrection to children, but we need to tell them why it matters. The same power, the scripture says, that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. The power to keep us with our confidence and boast in him. Let's sing again about the power of that resurrection. Let's stand in closing. Let no one taught in sin remain inside the is risen from
We are his house. We have come to share in Christ if our confidence and boast lay there. I hope this morning for those whose confidence and boast lays there that you have been strengthened. That your soul has been strengthened. But if you don't sense that today, if you know your confidence and boast isn't there, you can't take these promises as yours. This morning I pray that if your boast is not in him, you would shift it there. Let's pray. Father, I don't think the scripture could be any more plain to us. And we know in our heart of hearts where our confidence and boast lays. For your people, for your house, for those who've come to share in Christ, just give them a sense that, Lord, they are reaffirming it to you this morning. And maybe one who realizes it's been other places. They've been hedging their bets a bit. I hope this morning, Lord, they see that the only place to put it is Christ. Now hear this as we go this morning. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, Paul writes. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, put your confidence and your boast in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Go in God's peace and celebrate the resurrection. Thank you.